Amen. Well, if you're there in Psalm 84, I'm going to go ahead and start, and I'll just read the whole thing through, and then we'll go back through verse by verse and kind of take it apart. So, Psalm 84, to the chief musician on an instrument of Gath, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. I love this psalm. I just like, I mean, as I read through it, like you can really get a grasp of where the psalmist's heart was when he was writing this, right? What did he want? He wanted to be in the presence of the Lord, right? That was his biggest desire is that he would be where the Lord is. Well, many of have referred to this psalm as the pilgrim song. Um, and, you know, a lot of people think that this was one of the psalms that they would use as, you know, the, the Israelites would have to go to Jerusalem and worship for a number of times throughout the year. And so they believe that they would use this psalm, among others, to go up to the house of the Lord. And it was a song that was on their hearts as they were making pilgrimage, right? Uh, going from their dwelling place to their destination, Zion, Jerusalem, where the temple of the Lord is. And so we get this picture that this psalmist, is, he's excited about it, and he's excited to go and worship the Lord in his sanctuary. We see it in the very first couple verses. He says, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. He says, How lovely is your tabernacle, that, that dwelling place, O Lord. And it's not exactly clear when this psalm was written. It says that it was written by the sons of Korah, which is just a, a, a group of, of priests, you know, the sons of Korah, um, who's a son of Aaron. And so we don't know when this particular psalm um, was written. So is he talking about the actual tabernacle? Is he talking about the temple? I don't think it so much matters because what you get here. In, in either picture is you get a place that a lot of time and attention was put into making it beautiful, right? Uh, there are entire chapters uh, in the first five books of the Bible, right, that are devoted to talking about how they're going to decorate this place and what it's going to look like. And there's going to be gold and precious stones and um, there's going to be casts of angels and moldings and all these different things. They, they made it to be absolutely beautiful. But the thing is, they didn't make it to be beautiful just for the sake of beauty or just because these things are nice. They made it beautiful because of the one who dwelt there. And who is that? Well, he says at the end of verse 2, this is the living God. The living God dwelt there in the temple. 
And so it's not so much um, that the tabernacle itself is lovely, but the one who dwells there is lovely. And so we're going to make it lovely as best as we can on our, on our own, right? He says, how lovely is your dwelling place. My soul, my, my, it longs and faints for the courts of the Lord. And again, he's not so much talking about a place as much as he's talking about a person and his desire to be there with the Lord. And this really comes out at the end of verse 2 where he says, in my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. The English Standard Version says, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. So what's on his mind? I'm going to go praise the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out. I'm crying out to the living God. His desire was to be where the Lord is and in that place of praising and worshiping Him. To the living God. This wasn't some idol. This wasn't some uh, made-up thing. This wasn't some dead person. This is the living God. You know, as we came into worship today, I had a head start from you guys because I've had time over the last few days to dig into this and, and study it and meditate upon what it means. But when we come in here to worship the Lord on a Sunday morning and we're coming together corporately to worship, listen, this shouldn't ever be just business as usual. Who are we serving? Well, we're serving the living God. We're serving the one who spoke and everything was. We're serving our creator. We're worshiping the one who is worthy of all praise. And the Bible tells us that there is glory that is due his name. And I think that it's a shame when we approach the time of worship as like, you know, oh yeah, that's just primer for the word. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think it does prime our hearts for the word of God, but it should never be just that. Listen, when we come and we sing songs, it's not just entertainment, it's not just primer, it is giving glory that is due to the name of the Lord. He's worthy. He's worthy. He is the living God. You know, we've had an opportunity over the last, I don't know, couple months or so where it really seems like the Lord has been doing something special in worship, right? Um, we've experienced it here on Sunday mornings. We've definitely experienced it on Sunday nights where, I don't know, there's just more more worship taking place, and it's beautiful, and it's awesome, and, and let me encourage you, let's keep going after the Lord. Let's keep worshiping Him. This is His house. He's the living God, and He is worthy of praise. Well, at the beginning of verse 2, He says, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. This is an interesting thing. What does His soul long for? What is it fainting for? He says, well, for the courts of the Lord. I want you to notice what he doesn't say. What he doesn't say is kind of surprising, um, and I think that we can learn a lot from it. He does not say, my soul longs and faints to enter into the most holy place. He doesn't say, my soul longs and faints to enter into your presence. No, he says, my soul longs to enter the courts. Well, what's, what's the point? Well, when you think about the temple or even the tabernacle, they had different sections. So let's take the temple, for instance. They had um, the outer courts, and so they had the court of the Gentiles, then they had the court of the women, and then they had the court of the men. And those were where the common folk could, co could go, you know, not the priests. Uh, well, the priests could go there, but the, the common people couldn't go beyond that. Then they had the, the sanctuary, right, where sacrifice was taking place, and, and the holy place is what it was called. And then separating the holy place, there was a curtain or a veil. And behind this veil was called what? 
The most holy place, right? So the most holy place on earth. How about that? It's where the ark was. It's where the presence of God dwelt. And only one person, one time a year, could enter into that place. And it was on the Day of Atonement. The priest would go in there and offer sacrifices. Well, what's the point? Why am I, why am I going into all of this? Because in the Old Testament, to enter into the presence of God... It was a fearful thing. The Lord said, one guy, one time a year, you can enter. No more. No more than that. It was a fearful thing. And there were all kinds of warnings. You read, I think it's in Leviticus where it says, and you know, if you go in there in this manner, you're going to what? You'll die, right? Don't do this lest you die. It was fearful. It wasn't, it wasn't just a small thing to enter the presence of the Lord. And so the psalmist, he says, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts. I want to get as close to you as I possibly can, Lord, but that's, that's what I'm longing for. Well, something really interesting happened many years after this psalm was written. In Matthew 27, verse 50 through 51, Jesus has been scourged. He's been crucified. He's hanging on the cross, and it says this, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In other words, he died, right? Verse 51, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. What happened? Well, that veil that was separating mankind from the presence of God was torn from top to bottom. It's as if the Lord was saying, no more. I'm opening up the doors of my presence to mankind from now on. Not for just any reason, but because Jesus has made an acceptable sacrifice for mankind. And now for any who call upon the name of the Lord, we have received the righteousness of Christ and it is right and it is good for us to go there. Isn't that amazing? That we can enter into the presence of God whom for thousands of years the Lord said, no, you can't enter. You can't come in here. You can't. And then when Jesus died on the cross, the sacrifice was accepted and God tore the veil from top to bottom saying, now you can enter. Now it's right. Now it is good. And so we have the psalmist here who says, Lord, I just want to get close, right? I I just want to get close to your presence. I just want to get close to your courts. My soul longs and faints just thinking about getting that close. And here we are and we have full access to the presence and the glory of God, full access. The Lord didn't hold anything back. The door's not closed. It's wide open. The veil's not there anymore. It was torn from top to bottom. The Lord opened wide the doors of His presence through the blood of Jesus. And I want to ask you, do you go there? Do you go there? Do you go into the presence of the Lord? He's opened it up for you. Not because there's anything good found in us, but through the blood of Jesus. We have many exhortations in the New Testament that we ought to be going there. Ephesians chapter 3 says that we have boldness and confident access to the Lord. Amazing. Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 20 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says that we now have boldness 
to enter the holiest. Boldness. And listen, this isn't something that could have ever been said. You know, if I was one of those high priests on the Day of Atonement who was going in to offer sacrifices, going into the holy place, I don't think that boldness would be the word that I would use to describe the feeling that I would have. Do you think so? I think it would be more like, uh, fear? <laughs> like, I better make sure that I'm doing this right because I don't want to fall over dead. Uh, so, so, this is something that, that was not experienced for thousands of years as the Israelites were ministering to the Lord in the temple, and yet it says here that now, through the blood of Jesus, we can have boldness and confident access to Him. And do we go there? Do we seek the Lord in this place? Is, is that... Is that what we long for? You know, the psalmist, he says here, my soul longs and faints for the courts of the Lord. This word longing, it literally means hunger. I'm hungering for the courts of the Lord. You know, I, d- I didn't eat breakfast before I got here this morning, and as I was teaching second service, I like was feeling a rumbly in my tummy, right? It was, it was pretty bad. And so right after service, I went and I, I got some food and I ate it and, it and it was good. But the psalmist is saying, listen, I'm hungry for the Lord and only His presence can satisfy me. Would you describe that that is your spiritual state? You're hungering for the Lord and only the Lord can satisfy that type of hunger. Do you long for His presence in your day-to-day life? As you seek Him, as you're walking with Him throughout the day, as you're in the Word, as you're praying, do you long for the Lord on a, on a corporate level as, as we come together as a body of Christ to worship Him? And, and not only this, but do you long for the day when we're going to see Jesus face to face? Listen, this psalm, as I said, it's called a pilgrim song, and that's going to come out a bit um, here, here in, in the next few verses, uh, but we're on a pilgrimage right? So in the Old Testament, they were on a pilgrimage. They would go up to the temple to worship the Lord, but in a similar manner, we are on a pilgrimage. We are walking through this life on our way to see Jesus face to face, and do you long for that day? Do you hunger for that day? Does it consume your thoughts? Does it have an effect on the way that you live your life and your actions? And if it doesn't, then, then why not? I would encourage you, maybe stir up some hunger for the Lord. Seek Him. Ask Him to place that desire in your heart. Maybe you've been concerned with with the things of the world. Maybe you've been trying to be satisfied with other things. Listen, only the Lord's ever going to satisfy you in a way that lasts. If this psalmist, he was longing for the courts of the Lord, he's saying, Lord, I just want to get close. How much more should we who have full access to the presence of God, that we can go behind the veil with Him, how much more should we take advantage of that? Jesus bought and paid for that access on the cross. And so who would we be to not go there? It says, even the sparrow, verse 3, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. So he mentions the sparrows and the swallows, really these, these sort of little insignificant things, right? But it's almost like he's, he's yearning jealously, thinking that these insignificant things can be so near to the altar, right? That they can, they can make their nests and they can raise up their young um, in the temple area. And then he 
cast his mind to the priest. Verse 4, blessed are those um, who dwell in your house. They'll still be praising you. Just that longing, Lord, what an amazing thing that these, these people can dwell in your house and minister unto you. We'll move on, verse 5. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. So he says, blessed is the one who's strong in the Lord. And then he goes on to describe that strength. What does that strength look like? Their heart is set on pilgrimage. And so he says, blessed is this person. What does that mean? Well, it literally means, oh, how happy, right? It's a state of divine joy uh, beyond your circumstances. You're, you're blessed, you're happy, you're joyful. And he says the person that, that possesses this type of blessing is the one who's strong in the Lord, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. And again, you have the picture of them going up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. But as believers, we are on a pilgrimage as well. What's that? Well, we're, we're passing through this life. We are on a journey. And one day, we're going to get to our final destination and be with Jesus face to face for all of eternity. That's our, that's our pilgrimage. And the Bible tells us, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's, it's not here on earth. Yeah, I might say that I'm a citizen of the United States of America. Sure, that's true enough. However, even before that and beyond that, I am a citizen of heaven. And I'm eagerly waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those who are strong in the Lord and thereby those who are blessed are those who don't have their eyes fixed upon the thing of the world, but they have their eyes fixed on Jesus. They have their eyes fixed on the prize. They have their eyes fixed on that final destination that one day I'm going to be with him. Those are the ones who are blessed. It's all too easy to get our hearts set upon worldly things or our eyes set upon these things that that will not last. But Paul encourages us in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, that if you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Seek those godly things. Have your eyes set upon eternity, that we're going to be with Jesus forever. And there's an old saying that I understand the heart behind it, but I never really liked it. It's, you know, don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And I, I understand the heart behind that verse, but I think that the more heavenly minded you are, the more it's going to help you on your pilgrimage, right? The more heavenly minded you are for this journey, the more earthly good it's going to be. Like you, you take the Apostle Paul here who was I would say he was heavenly minded, right? He told the Philippians, you know, for, for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain, our citizenship is in heaven. You know he was thinking about it, and here we are on an earthly standpoint, still feeling the effects of his ministry. So I think that we could stand to be less earthly minded and more heavenly minded, and then that will be better earthly good for everyone, right? Because if that's the case, man, I think it's going to help our journey. I think it's going to help our pilgrimage, our pilgrimage set your mind 
your eyes, your hope, not on the things of this earth. Listen, if we do that, we're going to be discouraged. We're going to be distracted. We're going to be depressed. Look beyond those things and set your mind on Jesus. That's where we're going. That's the final destination. Verse 6, and as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. So he says, you know, blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God and Zion. So he says, you know, the exhortation there, be strong in the Lord, but then also the reality that there will be a time when we face valleys. And he says, as they pass through the valley of Baca. Now, Baca is a word, you could actually translate it two different ways. So the first way is uh, balsam tree. So as they pass through the valley of balsam trees. Now, a balsam tree was a tree that really thrived in like dry arid desert places. Okay, so that's the first translation. The second translation is anguish or tears. It could, you could literally translate it as they pass through the valley of weeping. And so which one is it? Well, if you look, I mean, you can look at different translations. I'm sure that you guys have different translations in your laps that say different things right now. You can look at different commentaries. It's pretty much split down the middle of you know, what people believe and how this should be translated and how it should be interpreted. I'm not so much worried about it because I think with either interpretation, you get the same idea that this is talking about a valley of hardship, right? Uh, whether, it's, whether it's a valley of anguish and weeping or a valley of drought and dryness, the picture is clear. There are going to be times when we walk through valleys. There are going to be times when we walk through hardships. I don't think that any, there's none of us that are, you know, excluded from that. We're each going to face hardships, and it's going to look different for each one of us. And, you know, maybe you're here, and you're, you're facing a particular trial right now. Um, and I, what I'm about to say is not to diminish the trial, because I, I understand trials are hard. That's why they're called trials, right? Um, and so no matter to what degree your trial is, I'm not trying to diminish this, but can I just say this? Look above the trial, right? He says that our heart should be set on pilgrimage. What's that? Our heart should be set on Jesus, that time when we're going to be before him in eternity, in heaven, in paradise, where it says that every tear is wiped away. There's no more sorrow. There's no more weeping. There's no more sin. There's no more pain. Look to that. Look to that time. I'm not saying that you don't grieve. I'm not saying that you don't struggle. But set your mind on heavenly things. And one day we're going to be with Jesus face to face. Paul said in Romans 8.18, and I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What does he say? The sufferings that we face in this present time, it's not even on the same playing field. Like these things, it's not even worthy to be compared to how good it's going to be for us when we're in heaven, to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And even for the time being, uh, I feel like the psalmist goes on to say, there, the valley of Baca is not wasted time. Check out what he says. Verse 6, as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it 
with pools. And so whatever the translation may be, they, they walk through the valley of dryness, well, a spring is going to well forth out of that. Or they walk through the valley of weeping, well, from the tears, there's going to be a spring that wells forth of that. Something good will come from this valley. And as believers, we have that hope. We have the hope, as Romans 8.28 says, that God works all things for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. He works all things for good. Every trial. There's, there's no fruitless trial, right? There, there's no wasted hardship. God uses it all to create springs in our life. Isn't that amazing? And this is why James is able to say, very famous passage, but in James chapter 1, he's able to say, brethren, count it as joy when you fall into trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He says, count it joy when you fall into trials. Can I just say that that is an exclusively Christian thing? <laughs> there's, there's nobody else in the world who would be like, oh, you're having a really, really hard time? Oh, that's terrible. We'll just go ahead and count it as joy, you know? And I don't think that that's the type of mentality or the type of, you know, that's not how it's saying it, but this is what the Scripture says, that we can have joy in trials. Why? Because we know who our God is. He's the living God. He's the creator of the universe. He's the one who loves us. He's the one who cares for us. He's the one who can take that trial and cause it to be a spring in your life. That's who our God is, and that's why we can count it as joy. And not only that, but He uses it to produce patience and fruit in our lives that we might be complete. This is who our God is, and this is why when we're in the midst of trials, when we're in the valley of Baca, we're not just wallowing in it. Now, I'm not saying, again, I'm not trying to diminish any trial, but look above, look beyond, see the Lord, find Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself in that valley and I just want to encourage you, don't forget that you're a pilgrim. Don't forget that, that the Valley of Baca is not your final destination. What's the destination? Heaven, with Jesus. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. I don't think that it's coincidence that these verses follow the passage where he talks about the Valley of Baca, right? Because he's just calling out to the Lord, hear me. hear me. And when we're in trials, I mean, that's our prayer, right? Lord, hear me. Do you hear me? Do you, do you hear my cries, Lord? Give ear to me. But look at how he addresses the Lord. He addresses the Lord in two different ways here. He says, Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. He says, you're the Lord of hosts. You're the God of heaven's armies. You're the God of the hosts of angels. That is who you are, Lord. Hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Well, who is Jacob? Jacob was a scoundrel, right? Jacob was a cheat. Jacob was a liar. And I think that he's just drawing upon, Lord, you are the God who is so far above, and yet you're also the God who came down and met Jacob, and you allowed this scoundrel to call you his Lord. So, Lord, would you hear my prayers too? Would you hear me too? 
commentator said, the God of innumerable angels in festal gatherings is also the God of the worm, Jacob. The one who is infinitely high is also intimately nigh. And that is the only reason why you and I can ever enter his presence. I love that line. The one who is infinitely high, he's intimately nigh. He's near. He's so far above us, and yet he comes down and he meets us. Verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So he says, a day in your courts, it's better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. He's saying it's better to be in the presence of the Lord for a day than to be anywhere else for a thousand days. So think of what the best the world has to offer. You have it in your mind? It's better to be in the presence of the Lord. It's better to be in His presence. It's better to be with Jesus. A single day in the presence of the Lord is better than a thousand days of what the world, the world's best has to offer. And you know, this is why it's so sad to me when you see people walk in rebellion. You know, being a youth pastor, I've, I've watched kids who just feel like they need to go through, I don't know, a rebellious phase or go, go taste the world a little bit. And I can never understand it because tasting of the Lord is so much better. <laughs> tasting of the presence of God is so much better. And, you know, listen, we don't need to rebel. We don't need to go taste of the world. We have everything that we need. We sang that song, taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you tasted lately? Are you hungry for the Lord? Taste and see. Go find Him. Go find that He's good. And even if it means that we're in the lowliest position in the house of the Lord, right? He says, it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. It's still better to be there with the Lord, even if it means that I'm, I'm in the lowliest, most humble position, right? And look at the contrast that he draws between the house of God and the tents of wickedness. The house of God is something that is permanent, that will last forever, whereas a tent is not a permanent structure, right? It's not something that's supposed to last. It's not something that you, you live in forever. Like, you know, we all, we've all gone camping before, and it's like so fun. You set up your tent, you sleep in there one night, and then you're like, okay, I'm done. Like, I'm going to go get my bed. Like, let's break this tent down. And uh, maybe some of you are like, no, I'm not like that, but I kind of am. I, I've grown partial to my bed and <laughs> to my house because it's the permanent structure. And he says, this is the house of God and it's permanent, whereas the tents of the wicked, it's not permanent. It's fleeting. It's fading. It's not going to last forever. So don't invest your time there. Don't invest your time in the tents of the wicked. Go to the house of the Lord. Verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. It says that he's a sun, so he gives light to our path. He guides us on our way. It says that he's a shield. He provides us with protection, right? You go and read Ephesians chapter 6, and we see the armor of God. He's our shield. He will give grace. What's that? That's God's enabling power for you to be able to go forth and walk in his will and to fight the good fight. 
and to get to the end of the journey of your pilgrimage. That's what His grace does. And He gives glory. And we know that when we come before the Lord and we see Jesus face to face, we will be glorified, the Bible tells us. The Lord gives us everything that we need for the journey. You are not lacking in anything. What you have today is what you need today to walk in a victorious manner before Jesus, to fight the fight and to finish your race. 2 Peter 1.3 tells us that His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. He's given us everything we need. You're not lacking in anything. And not only that, but check out the end of verse 11. It says, And no good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Let me read that again. Let it sink in. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. That is quite a promise. And listen, this isn't just any other book, right? This isn't just ancient writing. This is the Word of God, and God is not a liar. And so you can take this verse at face value and apply it to your life. If you're walking before Him in uprightness, uprightness, He's not going to withhold good things from you. He doesn't do that, ever. That's not in His character. He's not a liar. He does not withhold good from those who walk uprightly. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe it's true? Well, I hope you do. But you know, this is one of those verses that's really easy to believe when you're not walking through the valley of Baca, when you're not walking in the midst of the trial, it's really easy to, to just latch onto this and be like, yeah, no, no good thing to see withhold, but what about for those times when we're facing hardship and trial and difficulty? Well, then it, then it becomes a lot harder, right? What do you do when you're in the valley? In those times, do you trust that the Lord isn't withholding good from you? You know, there are going to be times... And many of us have experienced them already, and we will experience them again. There will be times in our lives where we feel like, this isn't good, so why am I experiencing it? I know I'm walking with the Lord, so what is going on? And it's in those times that you need to trust the Word of God above what you feel. Trust the Word of God above your circumstances. Trust that He is able to work good out of something that seems not good. We don't have the full story. We don't have the full picture. And we can trust our God. You know, my wife Megan and I, we've been married for 12 years. And over the course of our marriage, this verse has really ministered to us a ton. And it's, it's in a lot of ways, it's become our life verse. It's challenged us to trust that the Lord is good and that He doesn't withhold good things from us. We're walking with the Lord. We love Jesus. I can say, you know, not, not from a prideful standpoint, I'm a man saved by the blood of Jesus, and we're walking with Him. And so, um, this has been a verse that we've, we've just clung to. And um, one of the biggest trials that we faced in our marriage is that we haven't been able to have kids. And I'll tell you, it's been, it's been a struggle. It's been really hard in, you know, seasons and valleys where it's harder and easier or, or whatever. But overall, it's been a challenge. And if you've struggled with barrenness, um, then I'm sure that you have struggled with feelings like the Lord is withholding good from you. 
like the Lord is withholding something good from your life. Like, you know, for me, I think like it's a baby, right? Like the Lord says that these are blessings. These are good things. So why, why is this being withheld from me? Well, the Lord has, you know, brought us on a long journey with this and he's shown us many things. But one of the things, like one of the aha moments that I had with this was the Lord showed this verse to me. And it was actually reading something about George Mueller. I think I was reading a biography and I can't remember where I got this quote from, but I'm pretty sure it was, was one of his biographies. And it was at a time in his life when he was, um, his wife was on her deathbed. And this is what George Mueller said. He said, the last portion of scripture which I read to my precious wife was this. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I said to myself with regard to the latter part, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I am in myself a poor worthless sinner, but I have been saved by the blood of Christ and I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs, as I have often said before, from taking God at his word and believing what he says. Isn't that just beautiful? Like, I read that, I forget how many years ago it was, and I was just floored. Like, he, his wife was on his death, but she ended up dying um, in a, a few days after that. But George Mueller says, I took God at his word. If it's good for me, the Lord is going to give it to me. And if something's being withheld from me, then that thing that's being withheld must not be good for me. And, you know, for Megan and I, with, in regards to kids, like, this is, this is the conclusion that we've come to. And I'm not saying that it's, it's always easy and that, you know, it's always just great. Um, but this is the conclusion that I've come to. I can trust the Lord. I can trust that He is sovereign. I can trust that He is holy. I can trust that He is good. I can trust that He intends good things for my life. And if He is withholding children from us, then I can praise the Lord and say, thank you, Lord, for your goodness in my life. I can trust that this is good for me because I know that you're a good God. And I know that you care for me and I know that you want good things for me. And I'm your son. And so what is that valley that you're walking through? What's your valley of Baca? What's that trial and hardship in your life that you're facing? Can you trust the Lord with it? Can you trust that the Lord is good and that he's not, he's not being stingy with you and that he's not withholding good things from you? He loves you. Trust him. Entrust your life to him. This is why he ends in verse 12 and he says, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. You're blessed. You're in that state of perfect happiness and joy when you are trusting the Lord. Have you ever been in a state with your walk with the Lord where you're not trusting Him? Would you say that that's a blessed state? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a state of anxiety, right? It's a state of fear. It's a state of turmoil. It's not good. But he says, when you're trusting the Lord beyond your circumstances, beyond the valley of Baca, when your eyes are set upon the pilgrimage that you are on, that you're going to be with Jesus face to face, that is a state of blessing. That is the state of a man who is blessed when you are trusting the Lord, when you don't understand why you're facing the trial that you're in.
trusting him beyond your trials. Psalm 4610, I'll close with this famous verse. It says, be still and know that I am God. This verse was shown in a whole new light to me when I read it in the New American Standard. It says, cease striving and know that I'm God. Be still, cease striving. What's the point? Relax. Relax. Trust the Lord. Let go. You're on a pilgrimage. You're you're going to him. You're going to see him um, one day. Trust him with everything because he's good and he does good. And this is the Lord that we're talking about. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the living God. He's the creator of the universe. He's the one who delights in showing mercy and kindness to you. And so trust him. Trust him with your life. Trust him with your pilgrimage. Trust him with this journey. And one day, we're going to be with him in heaven. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much that this is true. Thank you, Lord, that you have promised eternal life to those who call upon you. Thank you, Lord, that by your blood we're able to enter the holiest place. That we can be saved and made right in your presence, not by any work I've done, Lord, but by the perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross, Lord, I thank you. Lord, who am I that you would put your affection upon me? Who am I that you would care for me in the way that you do, Lord? And I pray for us as a, as a church that we would just be characterized more and more by as being a people that trust you. Yes, of course, we've trusted you, Lord, for saving faith, Lord, but that we would trust you with our lives. Trust you when things are hard. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. I just want to give you a moment to respond to the Lord. Maybe you're here and you've really been walking through a trial. I just want to encourage you, take the next few moments to cast your mind to the Lord, looking beyond the valley and seeing Jesus there at the finish line. Maybe you're here and you've not been walking through a trial, but you've also not really been entering into the presence of the Lord and taking full advantage of what he's bought for you, take time, go. Go to the Lord. Go enter in boldly. And maybe you're here and and you realize through this teaching that you don't know Jesus and that you're not on a pilgrimage. You're not living a a blessed life. You're You're not on your way to him. I just say that you need to make that decision today. Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so take this moment, seek the Lord, you pray, respond to him. Lord, we're so thankful to be called your children. Just pray that you would draw us closer and closer to you, Lord, that we would know you, walk with you, seek you. 
And Lord, that we would live in that blessed state of those who dwell in your house, those whose strength is in you, and those who trust you, Lord. We love you. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, why don't we all stand together, and we'll close with this song. And uh, if you need prayer for anything, I'll be up front. we got some, some brothers and sisters up front here as well for any of your prayer needs, so come on up. And uh, also, don't forget to join us tonight at 6 p.m. for our prayer meeting. We'll have an extended time of praise and worship and just seeking the Lord together. So hope to see you there tonight. God bless you.